we're having some church this morning. So good, so good. Jesus, thank you for your grace. We are in awe of it, and we want to study who you are and understand your grace even more as we look at your word today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. So glad that you joined us this morning. If you are a guest with us, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. You chose a good week, we think, to show up as we started a new series this week called How to Be Happy. And we're going to be looking at this famous sermon that Jesus gave, these Beatitudes, which are attitudes that those of us who belong to him in his kingdom should have. But we called this series How to Be Happy, and I'm going to explain that in a moment on why we titled it that. But all of us look for happiness. We do. All of us, we were born with this desire, actually even a God-given desire to pursue happiness. It's in our Declaration of Independence in the U.S. that we've been given this God-given right to pursue it, to go after happiness. But oftentimes we can't, we can't find it. It eludes us. We think if I get that promotion or that new job, I will be happy. And then we get the new job or the promotion and three weeks in, we're still not happy. Or if this relationship didn't make me happy, if I start this relationship, then this relationship will make me happy and it doesn't make us happier. In high school, if I, if, if I go to 10th grade, maybe 10th grade will make me happy, Ninth grade didn't, and then this is gonna be the year of happiness for me. And so many times we are disappointed. Happiness eludes us. Adam Sandler in the very last episode of this season's Saturday Night Live did an incredibly funny sketch about happiness not being something we find externally, but something much deeper. And the reason it's so funny is because it's filled with a lot of truth. He's basically saying if you want to go on vacation over the summer, just realize if you're sad now, wherever you go, you'll still be the same sad you. <laughs> so he's funnier than me. Take a look at Sandler. Culture, history, spaghetti. These are the things of a boot country called Italia. Hello, I'm Joe Romano of Romano Tours. For two generations, my family has provided high-quality tours of Italy to people from all over the world, but mostly Long Island and Jersey. See Venice, the city of wetness. Point and laugh at the Tower of Pisa. And play with some dough in Napoli. People love us, but every so often a customer leaves a review that they weren't, they were disappointed or didn't have as much fun as they thought. So here at Romano Tours, we always remind our customers, if you're sad now, you might still feel sad there, okay? <laughs> you understand that makes sense? Our tours will take you to the most beautiful places on earth. Hike the cliffs of the Amalfi Coast, fish with the nets in Sorrento. Do this, I don't know. <laughs> but remember, you're still gonna be you on vacation. If you are sad where you are, and then you get on a plane to Italy, the you in Italy will be the same sad you from before, just in a new place. Does that make sense? There's a lot of vacation can do. Help you unwind, see some different looking squirrels. But it cannot fix deeper issues, like how you behave in group settings or your general baseline mood. That's a job for incremental lifestyle changes sustained over time. I want to be very clear about what we can do for you. 
We can take you on a hike. We cannot turn you into someone who likes hiking. <laughs> we can take you to the Italian Riviera. We cannot make you feel comfortable in a bathing suit. <laughs> we can provide the zip line. We cannot give you the ability to say we and mean it. Romano 2. We make memories, not memories. So good. And the reason it's funny, it's so funny. I laugh every time. I've seen it a hundred times. The reason it's so funny is because it's built on truth. Like all great comedy that's funny, there's truth beneath the surface. And the truth is, we've done this, and people we know have done this. We look for happiness in places that it's not found. If you're not happy in your current job, you get the new job. If you don't resolve whatever's not making you happy now, it's not going to resolve in the new job, the new relationship, the new location. All of those things don't ultimately make us happy. And the longer we live, the more we realize this. So in this sermon that Jesus gives, he's going to speak to us about happiness. And he's going to talk to those of us who already understand what Sandler's sketch does that those things don't make us happy. And so it must be something more. It must be something bigger. It must be something deeper. Jesus is going to say that your happiness is not about your circumstance, but it's about your character and the character that he gives you and the character that he transforms in you. And so the next seven weeks, we're going to study this passage. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew 5. Also in your bulletin, there is the scripture. We'll have it on the screens as well. This is a sermon that Christians have studied for the last 2,000 years. So if you've been a Christian just a little bit or a long time, you, you should study this sermon. We're, we're going to study this together because this is Jesus' words about what real happiness and real life is. We're going to study just the first 10 verses for seven weeks. So we're going to take a deep dive into the words that Jesus gives. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. And this is a perfect passage for you to study because you're going to get a sense of what the Christian life really is all about. And so in Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 10, Jesus gives these famous Beatitudes. I'm going to read the first 10 verses and then we're going to go back and look at just two of them today. And over the next several weeks, we're going to look at one phrase at a time. And by the end of this series, we'll understand what Jesus is saying, because the words are, honestly, they're shocking. They are shocking words. They are so different than what anyone else will tell you about happiness. And so you're going to be confronted. I'm confronted when I read these words with, do I really believe Jesus? Am I really going to believe what Jesus says happiness is? Because it's so different than what the world says happiness is. In fact, some people say of Jesus' words that he's describing an upside-down kingdom. Like it's, it's upside down, it's reversed, it's opposite of what we often think happiness is, which makes sense that Jesus would describe, describe an upside down kingdom because he's an upside down king. He does the opposite of what you expect a king to do. Our king comes here to die for us. Our king is a servant. He's an upside down king with an upside down kingdom. He does things that are unexpected and these words are shocking and otherworldly. So let's start. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. Notice verse 1. Jesus went up on the mountain. That phrase, if you were 
in this century, when this was first written, and you read this or you saw the event happen, you saw Jesus go up on the mountain, and then later you read Matthew writing, he went up on the mountain, you would have thought of another leader who went up on the mountain in Jewish history. In fact, that phrase, he went up on the mountain, is used three times in the Old Testament, just three times. And it's used all three times to describe somebody else who went up the side of a mountain. And who, who went up a mountain in the Old Testament? Moses. Moses went up the mountain. If you're new to the faith, this is really important to get this. In the Old Testament, Moses, after God's people were rescued from Egyptian slavery and captivity, Moses went up the side of a mountain and received the Ten Commandments from God. And then Moses brought the commandments to the people and essentially said to them, you were people who God rescued, and because you're rescued, because we're rescued, here's how we're going to live now as people who've been rescued. Now, some took those commandments and twisted them and made them a checklist. Like, if I do this, God will love me. If I do this, God will love me. If I do this, God won't be mad at me. But that's not what the commandments were. The commandments were for the people who had already been rescued. And so very similarly, these statements that Jesus gives is not a checklist for you. Okay, I'm this, God's going to love me. I'm this, God's going to love me. That's not what this is. Jesus going up the mountain is saying, hey, I am the one who's rescued a new people in my kingdom, and here's how we live in my kingdom. Okay, I want you to understand that before we share these statements, because we're going to have a difficult time living up to these statements. I have a difficult time living up to these statements. I need his grace, but these statements should mark and will mark the lives of people in his kingdom, especially those of us who are happy in his kingdom. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, so here's the famous sermon, the beginning of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Notice with every phrase, Jesus says, blessed. And we called this series, How to Be Happy. And the reason we did is because the word in the original language for blessed the New Testament was written in Greek, and so the original Greek word is the word makarios, and it means happy. And so, okay, well, then why did the translators who took the Bible from Greek to English, why did they say blessed instead of happy? Well, the reason they did, and the reason most Bibles say blessed instead of happy, is because we've seen in our culture that the word happy is overused. It's trite. And we know, those of us who study the scripture, we know Jesus is speaking about a much deeper happiness, a much greater contentment, a much greater fulfillment. But let's be honest, in our culture, we've made the word blessed trite too. New York Times recently called hashtag blessed the most annoying hashtag on social media. And if you're like, I'm not on social media, what does that mean? 
it's common practice where people will take a picture of how awesome things are going in their day and just hashtag blessed it. So there'll be a picture and they'll put hashtag blessed. And the pictures are often really good things, but it's taken the word blessed and made it seem less weighty and less meaningful. So here, here's some examples. I searched on Instagram even this morning. There's currently 1.3 million posts on Instagram with hashtag blessed. And and so this is what people declare to be blessed. Post-workout pics, big time. Hashtag blessed. We have a post-workout pic. There, like when you're, when your um, muscles are growing, it's just blessed. Everything's blessed. Food is very, food is very a bunch of blessing. Healthy eating is blessed. So I'm blessed to eat healthy, but I'm also blessed when I don't eat healthy. Here's another. So it's like, I'm blessed by healthy eating. I'm blessed by non-healthy eating. I'm just, I'm just blessed. Um, here's Michelle. She's really blessed because she can clean with materials in her own name. She's blessed to clean. Some of you are like, no, I don't want to clean. And so you're blessed if you have a machine that cleans for you. You're hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed. And, and it's summertime, so beer is a source of blessedness for many. A lot of, <laughs> lot of blessed, hashtag blessed. So clearly we've taken the word blessed. And, it's, and many of those things, they're good things, but we've thrown the word blessed around often. We've trivialized the word just like the word happy has been trivialized, but what Jesus is speaking about is that much deeper happiness, much deeper blessedness. We've learned that oftentimes when we can post something for the world to see that isn't even really true of our happiness, meaning we can make ourselves look happier than we actually are. Drake, in his most recent album and one of his songs, he pins this and, and very profoundly, I thought, Drake wrote, wrote this, I know a girl whose one goal was to visit Rome. Then she finally got to Rome and all she did was post pictures for people at home because all that mattered was impressing everybody she's known. I know a girl happily married till she puts down her phone. I know a girl that saves pictures from places she's flown to post later and make it look like she's still on the go. Basically saying people can make themselves look happy and not really be happy. So we're going to be confronted. I'm confronted as I've studied this. We're confronted with these paradoxical statements that Jesus gives because they are so otherworldly. Am I going to trust that this is real happiness or am I going to trust what the world says is happiness? But let's be honest. We've gone down this path and it hasn't delivered. So let's see what Jesus says over here about what it means to really be happy. So today we're going to look at the first two phrases. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. And we'll look at one of these phrases each week. Happy are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So two thoughts from these two statements. I'm going to hit these rather quickly, and then we're going to take communion together to remember that we're poor in spirit. Number one, happy are the spiritual beggars. This is shocking because Jesus doesn't get up, and he's known, even people who are not Christian, secular theorists will say Jesus is one of the greatest human teachers of all time in all of history, an amazing teacher. He doesn't do what you would think a teacher would do. He does not get up and say, happy are those who meet their life goals. 
Happy are those who have it all together. Happy are those who win at life. This is not what he teaches at all. He says, happy are the beggars. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. So when Jesus says poor in spirit, what does he mean? He's not saying poor in possessions. He's saying poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. It's possible to be rich in possessions and poor in spirit. It's possible to be poor in possessions and rich in spirit. Jesus is speaking about being poor in spirit. Now, it is true for those of us and all of us here, we live where we live in the time in history in which we live compared to all of the world's population and all of the world's history, all of us would be on the top 5% probably of all of human history. Some of us even higher than that. We are rich, all of us, compared to the world standards in possessions. And it's possible, according to Jesus, even likely that our possessions cause us not to seek him, not to trust him because we feel self-sufficient. We feel secure. We feel like we have everything together. But Jesus here is speaking about what it means to be poor in spirit. So let me explain what it means to be poor in spirit and then explain to you why that makes you happy. Because it doesn't sound like an equation for happiness. Let's be honest. You want to be happy? Yeah, just be poor. But this is what Jesus is saying. Happiness is poverty of spirit. In the New Testament, Jesus had two different words that he used as he taught for poverty. And I want to show you these to you because this is going to make this passage really, I hope for you, come alive. One of the words in the original language is the word pentecost, and it means typical poverty. So there was a time when, when Jesus affirmed a woman who was poor. She was pentecost. She had two coins and she gave it in the offering box. Do you remember that story in the New Testament? There was this woman who, who people said, look how little she gives. And Jesus says, no, she's given so much because she's giving from her poverty, her penny cross. She had something, but she had very little. All she had was two coins. Then there's another word for poverty. It's the word patochos, and it means extreme poverty. You don't even have two coins. You have absolutely nothing. You have nothing to put in the offering box. You have nothing. This is the word Jesus uses here. Happy are the beggars, those who have absolutely nothing. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you want to be happy, you are not rich in spirit, you're poor in spirit. What does it mean to be rich in spirit? This is about spiritual richness or spiritual poverty. To be rich in spirit would be someone who says, I have everything figured out. I've got this whole life figured out. Me and God are good because I'm so good. Look at all the awesome things I've done in my life. Look at how nice I've been to people and how great I've been to my family and how respected I am at work and how much I've achieved and accomplished. Everybody wants to be like me. I am rich in spirit and I stand before my God in my richness. God says you are not happy if that's how you approach God. He also doesn't say happy are the middle class in spirit. And if you read sociology, what's the mark in sociology of the middle class? The middle class are those of us who, who work and we earn and we work and we earn and we work and we earn. And spiritually, that's not the way to be happy. Because you're actually miserable 
if you, I'm going to do good things for God. God, was that enough for you? I'm going to do good things to stand right before you. I'm going to be a good person for you. The reason it's misery is you never know if you've done enough. You never know if you've obeyed the rules enough. You never know if you've kept up with, should I see this or not see this? Listen to this or not listen to this? Can I do this, not do this? You never know if you've kept the rules. It's misery to be middle class in spirit. Jesus says, happy are the poor, the bankrupt. They don't even have two coins. Those are the ones who are happy. And why are you happy that way? Because here's happiness. Happiness is when you receive everything that God has for you. And God has everything for you. He offers himself for you. He wants to give you joy and peace and hope. He wants to give you everlasting life and an eternal life and abundant life now. He wants you to receive everything from him. All he has is yours. But the only way you receive it is if you come to him with open hands. The only way you receive all the good things from God is if you realize that you are poor in spirit. And when you're poor in spirit, our good and gracious God, he pours out all all the good things, all the blessings on you, and he gives you an abundant and everlasting life. That's how good he is. If, if you realize you're poor, if you come to him poor in spirit. Martin Luther, who started the, the Reformation, he was middle class in spirit before he became a Christian. He was a miserable monk according to his own description of himself. He lived his life wondering if he did enough good things for God to love him. Have I fasted enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I given enough? Have I studied the scripture enough? And he was absolutely miserable, middle class in spirit. And then one night he was reading the scripture. He, he came across a verse in Romans chapter one, Martin Luther did. And as he read the scripture, he realized, God gives me forgiveness. I don't earn forgiveness. God gives me righteousness. I don't earn righteousness. All I do is I come to him as a beggar and I receive. And that moment changed Martin Luther's life and changed lots of lives as he went around scandalously preaching that you were not qualified before God by anything you do, but only by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. On his deathbed, one of his friends asked him, and you've created a lot of noise with this message that you're preaching. How do you feel on your deathbed with this message that you've preached? Here was Martin Luther's last words. We are beggars. This is true. See, you're a beggar not only when you become a Christian. See, some of you think, I get that when I first became a Christian. But Jesus is saying for those of us who are in his kingdom, you are happy when you stay a beggar. You don't get out of spiritual poverty. You stay spiritually impoverished. That's happiness. I'm telling you, Jesus' words are so otherworldly. We we don't think this way. It actually is happiness to stay empty-handed before God because when you stay empty-handed before God, that's when you constantly receive his grace and his mercy and his blessing. It's happiness to stay impoverished before God. See, when I first became a Christian, do you remember when you first became a Christian, how happy you were? I mean, that's like the happiest moment, right? I would think you would say yes. I mean, you find out. 
you find out that, hey, your sins are forgiven, all of them. I remember when this sunk in, all of my sins are forgiven. Yeah, yeah, not just the ones in the past, but all the messed up junk I'm gonna do later in my life, that's forgiven too. Boom, I mean, this is amazing. God loves me despite myself. God assumes responsibility for me. He's adopted me as his son. I was so filled with happiness. But when you first become a Christian, you realize that you are spiritually impoverished. I've messed up, I need your grace, I need your grace. But here's what happens to some of us, and this has happened to me until I've really understood that this is not how God desires us to live. But sometimes we start to think, okay, imagine this chair's Jesus, right? Sometimes we start to think, as I get closer to him, I'm not spiritually poor anymore. I was spiritually poor, but I'm not spiritually poor now. I mean, I read my Bible today, boom, I gave money. I remember the first time I tithed to the church. I was a senior in high school, I had worked this construction job and I wrote a check to the church and I thought, boom, I, I mean, I am following Jesus hardcore. I mean, this is awesome. And the more I got closer, I actually at times lost the sense of being poor spiritually. But when that happens, and think about your own life, you actually lose your happiness. You lose your happiness when you think you are doing something to stand before God. The way to grow in happiness as you get closer to him isn't to think you're less poor, is to realize even greater how poor you are, which means his grace is so awesome. His grace is so much bigger than your poverty. We have nothing. He gives us everything. That's happiness. That's happiness. This is what Jesus is saying. Happy are the poor in spirit. And we stay empty-handed, open-handed before God to receive from him. All right, that's number one. Here's number two. And number two is built on number one. Happy are the spiritual mourners. Jesus says, happy are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, there's other passages where Jesus speaks that when you are going through mourning, the loss of a loved one or a painful situation, that he is the God of all comfort and compassion and he comforts you in your time of need. Absolutely true. This passage, the mourning that Jesus is speaking about, isn't that type of mourning. Here, because it's built on verse 1, he's speaking about mourning our poverty, mourning our spiritual bankruptness. Mourning the fact that we are still struggling with sin. And if we mourn, we will be comforted. So what do we mourn? Two things, I have this on your notes. We mourn the brokenness of this world, the sinfulness of this world. See, when you become a Christian, you actually get alerted to the pains of the world. You do. You start to care for injustices. You start to care that people aren't treated with dignity and respect. You care about the brokenness and the pain and the suffering in this world. And so you mourn that brokenness, but you don't mourn as somebody without hope. You mourn with hope because you look to Jesus and you know that one day Jesus returns and he reverses the curse. That one day Jesus returns and he rights every wrong. That one day Jesus comes back and every injustice he makes right. And he makes all all things new. And so we mourn. Yeah, it's good news. We mourn, but we don't mourn without hope. 
And if you don't have Jesus, the weight of this world will absolutely crush you if you pay attention. I mean, if you pay attention, if you just look on your feed or just pay attention to the news, this world is crushing. And we mourn, but we don't mourn without hope. Therefore, we're comforted because we realize we're poor in spirit and we've received everything from Jesus. So we are comforted. There's lots of articles in, the re in recent weeks about the 15,000 contractors that moderate content for Facebook. They don't work directly for Facebook. They work for companies that have procured contracts with Facebook and they show up at work every day. They're, they're not paid extremely well. They're, they're low paying jobs. They show up at the offices where they work. They sit in a cubicle all day and their whole job is to moderate what content is allowed to stay in the platform. So anything that you put up there, those 15,000 contractors watch it, which means they also see horrific things every single moment that are trying to be uploaded to Facebook. So there's been murders that have been broadcast on Facebook that they're taking down. There's been horrific racism that they've had to take down. There's been all kinds of injustices that people have celebrated and put on Facebook that they've taken down. And so these employees that work, these 15,000 employees, there's studies done on them now because the studies are finding that they last, all of these employees last about a year. And many of them after their year are suffering PTSD because they've been confronted with the, the depth of brokenness of our world. If you pay attention, there's brokenness all around. And so we mourn, but we're comforted because we mourn differently. Because yes, this world is broken and fragile and messed up because sin has ruined things. But we have a redeemer that one day makes it all right. He makes it all right. And so we mourn, but we are comforted as we mourn. Here's the second thing we mourn, and I want you to see this. And this is going to help us move into communion. We mourn our own sinfulness. So happy are those who are poor in spirit. So we stay poor, and therefore we mourn our own sinfulness. But, okay, Eric, this doesn't sound like an, a recipe for happiness, if I walk around all the time mourning my sinfulness, mourning that I still struggle, which all of us do, how is that going to make me more happy? Well, I want to show you an example from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament. When you read his letters, you would say, I think you would agree with me, he becomes more joyful the longer he lives. Would you agree with that? Like when he writes the letter in Philippians, he's, he has nothing. He says, I'm content in everything. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, which is not a verse about dunking a basketball. It is a verse about being content in all things. And I'm content in all things, he says. I have joy in all things. So the longer Paul walked with Jesus, the more joyful he was and the more holy he was. But he also, check this out. You're going to see it. I want you to see this. He actually viewed himself as more sinful, even though he was less sinful. And because he viewed himself as more sinful, he was comforted more and therefore filled with joy more. I'm telling you, this is like upside down paradox, but I want you to see it. In 56 AD, Paul wrote this. Bible scholars believe it was 56 AD that he wrote a letter to the Corinthians who lived in a city called Corinth. And notice what he called himself. 
So this is Jesus. This is Paul. I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 56 AD, Paul sees himself as I'm the worst preacher. Like there's no other preacher worse than me. Next, 60 AD, just a couple years later, he gets closer to Jesus and he's filled with more joy. And you would think, well, that means he sees himself as less sinful. But notice what he says. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, that means all the Christians, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. You see what he does in just a couple years? I'm the worst preacher. I'm the worst Christian. That doesn't sound like Paul's getting happier, but he's getting happier. I'm the worst preacher. I'm the worst Christian. Well, how's he getting happier? Because as he's mourning, he's comforted more and more. As he's mourning, he realizes, man, the grace of Jesus is incalculable. It's even bigger than I first understood. His love and his mercy are more marvelous than I first knew. He loves me more than I first understood. Boom, I'm happier. And you are too if you mourn your sinfulness. Now look at this. 62 to 64 AD, scholars debate, but it's after the other ones. 1 Timothy 1.15, he writes to his son in the ministry, Timothy, and he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. The Apostle Paul, in a matter of four or five years, went from I'm the worst preacher to I'm the worst Christian to I'm the worst person on the planet. <laughs> Eric, and you're saying that's happiness. That's what Jesus, Jesus is saying is happiness. Eric, I... And I, I get this. It's like the opposite. It's the opposite of how we often think. Why is it happiness? I, I get as you wrestle, I wrestle with this. Why is this happiness? Because when you show up to Jesus with nothing, he overwhelms you with his everything. And that is happiness. Happier than anything you'll ever post on Instagram. Happier than any vacation you'll ever take, any possession you'll ever acquire, relationship earthly that you will have. This is true and real happiness when you experience Jesus and all he has for you. And you will experience Jesus more and more the more empty-handed you are as you come to him. And he has this for you. The summer after my freshman year in college, I stayed and went to school over the summer, and the dormitory I was living in was shut down. Therefore, I had to find a place to live. And there was this retired missionary couple that invited me to live with them. They had served their lives. They were in their 80s at the time. They had given their lives to serving people groups who had not heard of Jesus, and they had served their entire lives that way. Jerry and Sarah Monroe, they've gone on to be with the Lord but I lived a summer with them. I would walk in from class into the front room, which really all there was was a front room and their bedroom and my bedroom. And in the front room, which it was the kitchen and front room area, I would walk in and so many days, so many days, 
I would see them at this old couch that had duct tape on the top of it. And they were kneeling, holding hands, praying. And they would pray prayers that sounded like they were first becoming a Christian. Like, God, have mercy on us. We want to know you more. Please forgive us where we fall short. And I'm thinking, I haven't seen these people fall short at all. They're like saints to me. But they, for them, forgive us, forgive us. Lord, we long for more of you. They mourned, and they were the happiest people. And I wanted to be like them. Happy are those of us we aren't spiritually middle class trying to impress Jesus. We aren't spiritually rich. I got this all figured out. We're spiritually poor. Jesus, I come to you with empty hands. And he gives you everything. And we mourn. And he comforts us. He reminds us over and over again, you're mine, you're my son, you're my daughter, and my love for you is bigger than you ever we're going to take communion together. And as we do, this is what's going to remind us. Jesus, <clears throat> we could not earn our standing before you. We could not earn our forgiveness. So you came here for us. We have empty hands. This bread represents your body. This juice represents your blood. And I'm taking this to remember that you did everything for me. So I'm going to ask our ushers to go ahead and prepare for communion and then I'm going to pray, and they're going to pass out the bread and the juice. The scripture teaches that communion or the Lord's Supper is for those of us who have already received his forgiveness. Because it reminds us that our sins have already been forgiven. It's a special meal that Christians have been taking for the last 2,000 years. So we're going to take communion together. And so here's what I want us to do. I'm going to pray, and then our... Um, ushers will pass out the elements, the bread and the juice. I want you to grab them, hold them, and then just pray, spend time with Jesus. I'll come up and then lead us to take these together. And so what, what do you do as you sit there with the bread and the juice? Well, let me tell you what I do. I look at the bread and I hold the juice and I thank Jesus, thank you, that you did for me what I could not do for myself that you took all of my sin upon yourself. Thank you for loving me first. Also, I spent some time praying. If there's something broken now between me and you, I turn from it, I turn to you. Jesus, I need your grace now. I need your grace again. So you spend a couple of moments praying to him before I lead us to take this together. Jesus, you are so good to us and we are so grateful. As we take this bread, as we hold this bread and hold this juice, prepare our hearts. Help us to feel the weight of this moment. Our spiritual poverty, that we're, we're bankrupt before you. Help us to mourn. For we know that you'll comfort us. For we know that you'll make us happy. And so we... we we sit in this moment. We, we sit in the weight of this moment. And we, we thank you that you're rich and we're poor.
and that you have given us the incalculable riches of your grace. In your name I pray, amen. You sit with the bread and the juice and think about Jesus, all he's done for you. Prepare your heart for communion.
There's so much symbolism and significance in this meal that Jesus started with his disciples. They were Jewish, so they were gathering together for the Passover, which was their remembrance that they had been rescued, their ancestors had been rescued from Egyptian slavery. And that's when Moses came and gave them the new the commandments, right? And so they remembered their rescue. And Jesus said, from now on, you're going to remember a greater rescue. The rescue not from Egyptian captivity, but the rescue from the slavery of your own sin, your own foolishness and selfishness. Because from now on, this bread is going to represent my body. And on the body of Jesus, all of our sins were laid which means there's no more sin left on you if you're a Christian. There's none left on you. Happy are those who are poor in spirit because there's no sin left on you at all. It was all put on Jesus. So we take and eat to remember his body. Take and eat. Jesus then took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. They remembered because they were remembering at Passover, the blood of lambs on doorpost. It's this epic story in the book of Exodus that when they were in slavery, Moses, the leader, told them, kill a lamb, put the blood on a doorpost. I know this sounds crazy. Put the blood on a doorpost and God's going to pass over because he's going to see the blood on the doorpost of your home as a distinguishing mark that you belong to him. And so they did that. They killed lambs and they put blood of lambs on their doorpost and that let God know that those people belong to him. And so when God sent a plague throughout all of Egypt, those people were spared because the blood of lambs were on the doorpost. Jesus comes and he is the Lamb of God. We don't have his blood on the doorpost of our homes. We have his blood covering our life. And so he looks at you now, and you have a distinguishing mark that you're his son, that you're his daughter, because his blood covers all your sin. Take and drink. The disciples, after they took the Lord's Supper, communion, they sang. We want to sing. We want to sing a song about we could not climb a mountain. We couldn't get the relationship right between us and God, so he climbed down the mountain for us. He came here for us. Let's stand and let's sing this great truth. And 
Amen. Amen. Yes. What a good day. He's alive. He's our living hope. Our living hope. And because he's our living hope, he comforts you daily. Because he's our living hope, he gives to you daily. Because he's our living hope, when we come to him with open hands, he fills us daily. He's our living hope, our living hope. Amen. If there's anything going on in your life that we can pray with you about, maybe the, the weight of this world is just stinging you today. In this room filled with pain, we do not want you to walk out without somebody praying with you. So we have a team of people to my left, your right, right by those lights there, who would love to pray with you with, with whatever burden you're carrying. If your need is prayer for healing, we have an elder prayer room. To get to our elder prayer room, you go through the doors in the back and you take a right. Our elders pray for spiritual healing, physical healing, emotional healing. The scripture tells us in James 5 that if you are sick, you can ask the elders of the church to pray with you and anoint you with oil. And we do that every week in our elder prayer room. We have a new small group series called Connect Groups that are starting. So if you're not yet in a group and you want to study the Beatitudes deeper than what we do in here, actually like a further step, then you can um, get plugged into one of those groups. We have our group's information on the patio, but also there's information about that in your bulletin. If you're not in a group, we'd love to help you get connected to a group. Let's extend our hands and receive God's blessing as we go. Jesus, we have our hands extended to you now. And they remind us that we are empty-handed before you. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, your sons and your daughters, that as their hands are extended, that this brand new week, you would fill them with all of the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would meet all of their needs according to your riches and glory. I pray as they walk with empty hands this week that you would remind them over and over again how deep and great your love for them is. I pray this week that you would cause them to be happy, happy in you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.